Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. Sabah al-khair. Good morning, dear listeners. You're listening to Radio 3CR on 855 AM and Palestine Remembered with Robert Martin, Nasser Mashni and Yusuf Ahmed al-Rimawi. Palestine Remembered is Australia's only English-language radio program that is totally dedicated to Palestine. We'd like to welcome those listening on 855 and those that will join us on podcast at 3cr.org.au. Thanks for joining us. Stay with us and enjoy the episode. Good morning, Robert. Good morning, Yusuf, and good morning, listeners. We don't have Nasser uh, again. He's uh, not with us. No, he's taking another personal day. Well, we'll have a few words with him when he comes back. <laughs> good luck to him. He better listens. He'll have some good stories when he gets back anyway. So um, we have um, two uh, amazing uh, Palestinians on the show today. Very very moving too. So the mm. first one we've got is Jaffa Ramini, who has been on before. He's very well known overseas. He does a lot of TV work. Uh, but he's going to be talking to us about the Nakba. Mm. But from a personal point of view, from a five-year-old, I don't want to give too much away, mm. but from a five-year-old growing up, he he lived it and experienced it. And it's a very moving interview. So please and, stay with us for that. And he spoke about his personal story like it happened yesterday. Well, yeah, and people will notice that when he's talking about it, it's like he's living it. And our next uh, guest is Palestine Musa. She was named after Palestine. Palestine is the Arabic word of Palestine. Palestine Musa is an ex an ex Yarmouk Palestinian in the Netherlands. She um, fled Syria due to the war and, of course, the added level of suffering of Yarmouk. And um, she started uh, after losing so many family members. And nevertheless, within two years, she managed to set up an organization called Huwiyati, My Identity. And she will tell us about her journey. But the beginning will be with Jafar Ramini. So stay with us and we will be back shortly. We're very, very lucky and honoured to have Jaffa Ramimi, who we've had before a year ago. And because we're coming up towards the Palestinian Nakba, Jaffa's going to talk to us about being one of the children of the Nakba. So welcome, Jaffa. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me. Thank you again. Now tell us, from um, you obviously have some acute memories of being a part of the Nakba. If you can sort of just go over what you remember, how it's affected you and your family. I remember it as if it were yesterday. Uh, I was five years old in 1948, and I remember uh, the Israeli uh, aeroplanes. Then they were not called Israel, of course. They were the uh, Zionist ter- terrorist uh, gangs who were flying over our town, which is Jenin, in the north of Palestine, dropping leaflets like confetti. 
uh, unfortunately, those leaflets were not to herald a wedding or a celebration. They were a warning, and on it they said, leave or die. Uh, many of your listeners will not know about the massacre of Deir Yassin that took place a few weeks earlier, in which the Ergun and the Haganah Jewish terrorist gangs invaded a sleepy little village a sleepy little village uh, called Deir Yassin on the outskirts of Jerusalem. They came to that village during the night, and everything they came upon and stood in their way, they either killed or destroyed. The next morning, the men who survived that massacre, they were taken to Jerusalem, lined against the wall, and shot. The children were left to fend for themselves in the streets of Jerusalem. Of course, the news of that massacre went through Palestine like a, 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 a raging fire. Uh, Ben-Gurion uh, said about this massacre, without their Yassin, they would not have been uh, Israel. Uh, Menachem Begin, the leader of the Ergon gang then, said, the terror that was created by the Deir Yassin massacre was better than a thousand tanks. And of course... Just evil. Of course, we heard all of this in the north of Palestine. And we started to see the people leaving their villages. And then one morning in the, in the spring of May of 1948 we could see the, Israel, the, the Jewish aeroplanes flying over Jenin, where I was born, and dropping leaflets like confetti. These leaflets gave us two choices, leave or die. And of course, we had to leave, and we left everything behind. Some of us just the clothes on their backs and the keys to their properties. I remember it as if it was yesterday. My late brother Mustafa carrying me on his shoulders and, and taking us, myself, my mother, and seven sisters and some of our neighbors through the mountains of northern Palestine, trekking to a little village called Yabad near Jenin, where we had friends and we stayed with them. And when the war ended and the armistice was signed. We came back to Jenin, and that scene will never leave my, my mind or my heart ever. Our garden was teeming with people, strange foreign faces I've never seen before. And I was five years old, clutching to my mother's hand and I said to her, Mama, who are these people? Why are they in our garden, in our house? And my late mother, being the holy mother and matriarch that she was, she said to me, Son, those are our guests. Those are our brothers and sisters. And we must give them sanctuary. In the weeks to come and the months to come, sitting on the balcony of our home, in Jenin. I could hear the trucks 
and the, the transporters thundering by our house, carrying tents, bedding, utensils, kitchen stuff, to house the flood of the Palestinians who migrated or who ran away from the massacres that followed. And that was the beginning of the Jenin refugee camp. The Jenin refugee camp, which was started in 1948, then housed about 15,000 people. When we went back to school that summer, and I looked on the playgrounds, all these faces of bewildered children, lost children, they don't know anybody in the school, looking around, looking for answers. My classroom, for example, swelled from 25 to 30 pupils, as per usual, to over 90. And the kids, these kids have no clothes to speak of. They couldn't afford the textbooks. And at, at that time, there was no UNRWA. There was no United Nations Refugee Works Agency. Nobody to help them. So we, the people of Jenin, started to collect stuff, clothes, whatever we can, shoes, coats, because in Jenin, it gets very cold in the winter and very hot in the summer. And these kids going around looking lost, I will never forget. There and then, I vowed to my mother and to myself, I'm sorry, to find out why is this happening to us. The, it's a, um, Jaffer, it's a very, very moving. I appreciate you talking like this. And I mean, the fact that beforehand we were asking about my kids, and you know, as we know, I have a five year old. But for you to be exposed to this as a child with your brothers and sisters is incredible. And it's one of the stories that, one of hundreds and hundreds of stories, obviously, thousands of stories that have to be told because this sort of thing never leaves you. Yeah, this is, I'm sorry if I'm becoming emotional. No, no, no we're no. listening with our ears and hearts and minds. Please it's continue. It's still very raw. Please. I can see it. I can feel it. And what I find perplexing is the world still sees what Israel does to us, and they turn the other way. And if they react, they say they have a right to protect themselves. What do they have a right to protect themselves against? Our children with stones, our women with flags, our men unarmed and exposed, this is not a one-time Nakba. This is a recurring Nakba. And it's 70 years old. And I am five years older than Israel. And I remember it all. Mr. Uh, Jafar, uh, while part of me is speechless, the other part wants to tell you that uh, while this story happened somewhere in Jenin, which is a unique story to your own family. It sounds like uh, <clears throat> the story of all Palestinians. I remember and recall stories from my um, family in Safad fleeing on foot to south of Lebanon and making it um, um, <clears throat> in few months to Syria. 
and uh, my mother was born a year after Nakba and uh, the fact that uh, you know uh, my late uh, grandmother of my mother how she buried the gold in Safad knowing that it's not worth taking it uh, to Syria because they will be or to Lebanon because they will be back in a week or two this is what we all uh, thought and 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 we were told that it is it's going to be over we did not take anything with us we took our the key of our hearts which my late sister who died only 5 years ago age 86 kept hanging in her house in Amman in the wall and many palestinians are still holding to those to those keys the irony of it all is how could the people like the jews who suffered through history on the hands of others do this to us and try to justify it. The only place on earth for over 1400 years where the Jews had sanctuary, unmolested, untouched, but welcomed was the Arab and Muslim world. And now they behave like that, killing us, murdering us, stealing our land, and refusing us even to commemorate the Nakba. In 2011, the Israeli Knesset passed a law to make it a crime punishable by huge fines if a Palestinian will even mention the Nakba. They erased us from the textbooks, from the history books. They say there is nothing called Palestine or the Palestinians. What a world are we living in? What are we to tell our children and grandchildren? What future for us in Palestine? And how are we to resist when we are oppressed and occupied by the fifth most powerful army in the world with the backing of the United States of America and countries like Britain, France, Canada, and here in Australia? What chance? What happened to humanity? Where is God if he does exist? So, so as, a, as a Palestinian, how, I mean, how do you see the horrific treatment that is sponsoring the world? How, as a Palestinian, do you think you can win? We can win by being there. This is what I always say to my compatriots. They haven't won. We, we are still there. We are still resisting, and we will continue until justice is served. And they know that the mere word Palestine and Palestinians make them shake into their boots because we are the people of, of the Levant who has proved through history that we do not do defeat. We'd rather die standing on our feet and not live on our knees. They have experienced us now for 70 years. 70 years in the life of nations is just a blink of an eye. It could take 100 or 200 years. At the end, we will prevail. I, I agree, and I'm sure that you will. And, you know, from an outsider who's really new to the Palestinian cause, the the strength in the stories is so moving, and I don't understand how the world hasn't opened their eyes 
to see the truth because Israel, you know, portrays to be this beacon of light in the Middle East. But the atrocities that they've done since the beginning to yesterday, I mean, the Nakba, yes, it did start in 1948 or just before, but it's still happening today. It's still happening in Gaza. It's still happening in the West Bank. I mean, they threw people out of their homes yesterday. Why, you know, some of the Israelis cheer and, you know, they think it's okay. What, what, what do we do, Jaffa? But, but we, we keep talking, we keep writing, we keep uh, educating, we keep advising, and we keep pushing our politicians. I mean, the politicians that we, and I mean, when I say we, because as you know, I live in England and now I'm visiting in Australia. When I say we, I mean Western democratic societies. We vote our, our politicians in, and our politicians are in office to serve us. Yeah. We've got to keep haunting them and telling them, why are you giving the, such blank uh, support to this uh, uh, apartheid state? Because that's what Israel is. It's a colonial uh, uh, project. It's an apartheid. It's racist. And now they have just last week passed a new law about the citizenship of Israel. And Israel is a Jewish state for its Jewish citizens. Yeah. What happens to the other people who are living there, the Christians and the Muslims and other faiths? Yeah. They have no room. Jaffa, um, just moving towards the end of the interview, we're running out of time, unfortunately. And everything you've said has given me goosebumps. It's been truly moving. So just as I said, heading towards the end, is there anything you can tell us about your school days? When, when one of the kids who were not known to us will not come to school the next day, we will go to their house and, and, and find out to ask his mom, why, why isn't he at school? Why is it? Because he doesn't have a pair of shoes to wear. Mm. He doesn't have a textbook to, to, to bring to school. Mm. So we, we, the people of Jenin, then, the families who came back to their homes. We, we, were, we used to share. We used to share our clothes. And our, I mean, I remember a boy who wanted to go to a wedding. He was, we, I was about 12 years old. And he came and borrowed my shoes well. to, to, to go to a wedding so he would not feel, feel ashamed. Mm. And these stories do not leave a person easily. No. These people haven't done anything to anybody to deserve this kind of treatment. Yet, the world, they are still languaging in refugee camps, Hmm. in Jordan, Hmm. in the West Bank. And we're talking about the second and third generation of these people. They are. Hmm. They are. And Lebanon. Hmm. In Lebanon, the Palestinians in Lebanon have no rights. They have no human rights at all. They have no rights to education no, or to employment. employment. To, hmm. Nothing. And the world, and we think that the world is civilized. This is not civilization. No. This is going back to the, to the dark ages. Now, Jafar, uh, uh, it's very important to, uh, to, to remind the second and third generation and the world what happened in 48 because it is an ongoing Nakba and we really thank you for, for sharing with us your personal journey and your personal story and we will be with you uh, in our future episodes uh, for the history of Palestine. So thank, thank you very, very much. much for uh, being with us and uh, we really look forward to talking to you in future. 
Thank you very much. Thanks for having me. Thanks, Jafar. What an amazing uh, interview, uh, Robert. It gives you uh, gives you goosebumps to to know that a, a six year old or a five year old went through that and still remembers it to this day, and to hear the the voice trembling as though it was happening today mm. is is incredible, incredibly moving. So thank you very very much for that, Jaffer. And I mean, these are the stories that the world needs to hear so they can open their hearts to the reality of what the Nakba means to the Palestinians. And um, this is the first generation Nakba survivor. Um, our next guest will be a third generation uh, from uh, Yarmouk, uh, the yeah. camp that's hit with a huge calamity and is being hit th- these days. And it tells you that the Nakba uh, is not a one-off historic uh, part of... No. It, it tells you that Nakba is not a, a one-off event that uh, hit Palestine and ended. It is ongoing. Yeah, it's going. And, and as I said to Jaffa, and we both discussed that, I mean, it, it happened yesterday. In Jerusalem, some families were kicked out of their homes. It happened in Gaza where the, some Gazans were killed by snipers. For just and trying to peacefully march towards their uh, original hometowns and villages. Yeah. So next is an interview with Palestine Musa, an activist from Yarmouk. And by the way, uh, our activist is named after Palestine. Her name is Palestine. Oh, beautiful. Which beautiful. tells you that the first generation Palestinians kept on Palestine, even named their kids after Palestine. It's a beautiful So name. stay with us and we will be back shortly. I'd like to introduce Philistine Moussa, who is a Yamuk Palestinian activist, who's now living in the Netherlands. Thanks for joining us, Philistine. Thank you for having me. So, so before the crisis, what sort of work were you doing? Because we understand that you're an activist and you've done a lot of work for UNRWA. I worked at UNRWA as a director of the Early Childhood Department at Yarmouk Social Development Center. Uh, I also worked in uh, training many young men and women working uh, with the children to improve work with the children. There were also a large number of uh, volunteers coming to volunteer work at uh, the center. And uh, most of them were uh, highly skilled and worked for a long time and were happy with uh, what they offered and uh, did not care about uh, the effort uh, and uh, the long time in their work. Palestine, uh, uh, take us through the important stages that Yarmouk camp witnessed since the breakup of the civil war in Syria. Uh, the events of uh, the camp began uh, to bomb Syrian army forces to the mosque of Abdul Qadir al-Husseini and the school of Fallujah by warplanes, and then the opposition forces entered the camp. Here began the suffering of the large people. Most of uh, the population filled their homes. And uh, all the service in the camp, include UNRWA, including uh, UNRWA, uh, were stopped. The second uh, phase of uh, the six, where the Syrian army closed all the road leading to the camp and completely cut water and uh, electricity, killing nearly 200 people from hunger and disease. The third stage was the entry of uh, the Islamic State organization 
into the camp. And uh, it's a harassment of the population. Finally, the camp was completely destroyed by the Syrian army. And under the pretext of uh, fighting the Islamic State, in this war, the only losers are the civilian population. Palestine, um, what does it mean to be under siege in Yarmouk? What did it mean to you? Uh, tell us uh, some of what you saw during the tightened siege of Yarmouk. Life was uh, very difficult. No food, no water, no medicine. People were eating grass. The children were starving and their parents could not save them. No one believed what happened there. Everyone was looking for something to eat. The main course was hot water with some spice or cactus and some grass. Now, I know this is a very personal story and it's something that none of us would ever understand or be able to empathise with, but I also know that you may have lost some family members. So can you just talk us through your personal story and tragedy of the Yomuk crisis? When uh, most people left uh, the camp, it was hard to leave my house or stay here. I chose the, to stay in the camp and started working. Then I opened a small school to teach children and provide psychological support for them. It was a very difficult experience. I have lost many members of my family, including my brother and husband. My son was exposed to a big accident after a shell explosion. Then it became necessary to go out. But I was very sad for those who left behind me there. I hope they are fine. So what was your last day in your milk like? Can you just sort of give us your feelings? It was a difficult and sad day. How can I leave my brothers here? I felt bitter when I came out of uh, the siege alone and cried a lot. But I had to go out to treat my wounded son. So two years ago you left Yamuk because of your injured son. And here you are now in Holland setting up an organization. Tell us about that. When I arrived in the Netherlands, I feel sad for all I had lost there in Syria, in Yermukkam. And then I decided to start again and began work on forming a culture, an institution, concert with the historical and cultural identity of the Palestinian people. I began to bring hand embroidery, traditional clothing, exhibitions and the workshop and then formed a Palestinian folk dance team. My identity in institution registered a wonderful culture institution in Europe in short time and the, the name of the institutions is my identity. That must have been difficult, uh, not only the language uh, barrier, 
but also arriving to a new country. Tell us about the challenges and how the Dutch population received the work of my identity institution. Building relationships with the new community was not easy. I had to work to gain confidence first. The Dutch love the Palestinian herche and the Palestinian food, as well as the Palestinian dabka. And now participate with us in most of our activities. Well, that was Philistine Morsa, so thank you very much for telling us your personal story. And what an incredible story it is to hear from losing so many members of your family to losing your home and everything that you know to ending up in the Netherlands and surviving and doing the things that she's doing. So thank you very, very much for sharing your story with us. Thank you. Thank you, Robert. Thank you, listeners. Uh, This has been a special episode uh, to me personally. Uh, given that I have family members in Yarmouk and given that all my uh, family members um, were Nakba, uh, were affected by Nakba in 1948. So uh, with this, we have come to the end uh, of another week of Palestine Remembered. Um, tune in next uh, Saturday, 9.30 in the morning. Thank you, Robert. Thank you. And thank you, uh, guests. Very, uh, very powerful. So until we meet, the, until we meet uh, next week, uh, this is Robert and Yusuf. Wishing you the best of time and salam.